Welcome to the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider, the podcast where we pull back the curtain and speak to the brains behind sales and marketing activity that has delivered real results. Get inspired and get actionable ideas by hearing what they did and how they did it. Brought to you by me, Ben Rose, along with Gorilla Technology. Welcome to another episode of the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider. I'm your host, Ben Rose, and today we're speaking to Philip O'Neill, Chief Marketing Officer at Financial Service Business, Forsyth Bar. We've had a night of the realm on the show before, but never have we had someone once voted New Zealand's best-dressed businessman. Well, folks, today is the day. Philip's very first suit sits framed on his wall, a fact that might seem unusual until you find out it was made for him by his mother when he was three years old. However, Philip is not only a snappy dresser, he's also well known in advertising and marketing circles, having spent 20 years working at various times as a marketing director in agency account management roles, as a writer, a strategic planner and a consultant. He's run marketing departments, advertising agencies, a media agency and a design agency. Ever the professional, Philip joins us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben, and thanks so much for bringing up the Best Dressed Award, which does rather stalk me, actually. Um, <laughs> I'm astonished by how many people remember that, and it's doubly unfortunate. It's, um, I think if you're honest, winning an award for being the best dressed is about as superficial as it's possible to be, and when you've spent most of your career working in either design or advertising agencies, the last thing you need is another reason for people to consider you superficial, but Perhaps that horse has bolted and I just need to accept it and move on accordingly. I'm, I'm just gutted that the medium of podcast is audio only. What, what a shame. What, 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 what Our listeners are missing out. Well, Ben, perhaps you could give a lyrical description of how I'm adorned today. I couldn't even begin. Um, so, Philip, let's have a chat about um, your, your career. Let's start at the beginning. I'd like to understand, I suppose, how you... Um, you know, why you started working in ad agencies and then why you made the move client-side to run a marketing department. Okay. Um, well, the ad agency bit is probably the easier bit. I apparently, at the age of 11, announced to my family that that was what I wanted to do. And the catalyst for making that announcement was that I had been home from school uh, sick one day and I'd been lying on the couch and I'd been watching television. And for some reason, uh, this goes back a bit, this is probably the early 80s, um, they used to broadcast the Australian Advertising Awards on right. New Zealand television, but they would do it at sort of two o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, uh, which happened to be when I was at home. Apparently I watched this uh, award ceremony and announced at the end of it that that was what I wanted to do. Um, I was, I think, about 11 at the time, so I have no recollection of why, but uh, I can imagine that it just looked like fantastically good fun. Yeah. Um, and I latched onto it and decided that was what I was going to do. And uh, I was lucky that I then had a path that I could follow to make that happen. Pretty simple path, really. I went to university. I got a degree in marketing. I made it clear that that was a thing that I wanted to do or at least wanted to kind of investigate. And the three A's, which was the precursor to the Communications Agencies Association and possibly a couple of other sort of iterations of that entity over time. Um, anyway, they used to run a scholarship through a number of the universities that had marketing programs. And at the end of that 
one person won the opportunity to go and spend six months working for an agency, right. which was the agency uh, of whoever happened to be chair of the council at the time. Um, so I had the opportunity to go and work at Ogilvy oh, in Wellington, um, which I did out of university. And uh, again, a lot of this is always good luck, good fortune, right place, right time, all of those things. Um, uh, I got to the end of that six months. There happened to be a vacancy. I ended up being there for seven, possibly eight years um, as a direct result of that. So that was the that was the path to being in agencies. Much, much later, there's the NA path uh, and a much more complicated path coming out of agencies and ending up working client-side in sort of, a, I guess, a corporate-style role. So it's, it's interesting. Lots of people don't know about, I suppose, the, the differences between um, agency life and, and, and corporate life. So why why did do some people find it quite difficult to come out of agencies into client-side roles? I think it's less that people find it difficult. I think it's that the client side finds it difficult sometimes to embrace people who come out of agency roles. Um, and I guess I should use the word embrace advisedly. They, it's not that people uh, are not open to mm. people coming from that agency kind of environment. It's just that the transition becomes quite a difficult one at a practical level. My experience of it, and I'm pretty confident that other people have had similar experiences, is that when you try and make that transition, there's a real enthusiasm often in the client-side world and corporate-type roles to have people come from um, different kinds of backgrounds, whether that's agency or anything else for that matter. Mm. There is absolutely an enthusiasm for wanting you know, different perspective and new experience and all of the things that that potentially brings to the table. The challenge is always in the final analysis or the final step. I had any number of instances of going through an interview process for a client-side role and you would find yourself in the last sort of two, sometimes three. And at the end of that, when uh, in those cases you didn't end up getting the job, invariably the feedback was a variation on you know, we thought it would be really interesting and we're really open to the idea of people coming in with different experience and it's a thing we really want to do as a business to change and evolve and do all of those things. But just for now, we feel like the right thing for us is to employ this person who has 15 years of deep experience in the industry that we're talking about. And I betray a certain cynicism in the way that I said that. And and I guess that's probably true, actually. Um but I can completely understand why. You know, there is a natural inclination to uh, to, to kind of push to the familiar, to see uh, or find comfort in someone who speaks the language and has been in organisations just like this one. Mm. That's quite reasonable and quite natural. And to be absolutely fair, it happens absolutely going in the other direction. People trying to come out of maybe client-side organisations and and go into an agency role, exactly the same thing happens. Mm. It's just human nature. We gravitate to the familiar. And so, um, again, I go back to having said it's a, a struggle to be embraced. It's not a struggle to be embraced. It's a struggle to make that final step and have someone be prepared to say, yeah, actually what we do want is that entirely different experience and we're prepared to accept that you may not necessarily be as familiar with the industry, you may not speak the language as fluently, but the experience that you bring justifies a period of getting you up to speed um, on the industry that you're now coming into. But so given given that 
things are slightly different at the moment in, in terms of the talent shortage and borders, whether they're opening or closing, seems to be making things worse. So people need to be more open to you know, different kinds of applicants for their, for their roles because there's just a smaller pool to, to, to fish from. So what would you say are the, you know, the key things that, um, are, that stand in favour of an agency candidate? What, um, why would someone hire somebody out of an agency these days? Um, one of the things that I particularly find in people who come out of agencies is that you learn almost, uh, it's not by accident, I guess you learn to do it deliberately, but one of the things you learn is absolutely the ability to see something from someone else's perspective. Fundamentally, it's what you do in an agency. You understand how someone else sees the world and the interests of being able to, um, you know, to persuade them, to mm. communicate with them effectively. And that's an incredibly valuable, transferable skill, I think. When you get into any organisation, it's the nature of work. It's people with different perspectives trying to resolve an issue, address a problem, define an opportunity, um, choose a path forward. The different perspectives and the ability to understand them, interpret them, um, potentially you know, find different ways of describing them or finding the interesting place in which those different perspectives might intersect is a thing that you get very good at when you're in agencies. And I think that's actually a really valuable skill um, within any organisation. So that's certainly one. I think the experience thing is interesting because um, you know the point's been made by many people uh, along the way that one of the great things about being an agency is that you get an exposure to a huge range of industries and organisations and cultures and styles of operating and you get um, what feels like a pretty deep sort of understanding of those things. I think from the outside people might say it's a, you know, it's it's maybe a, um, a, a less deep, more kind of uh, top level understanding of those industries, mm. cultures, whatever they might be. Nonetheless, it's pretty broad that experience mm. is actually in its own way quite expansive. So the, it's, it's just a case of, I guess, doing what marketing people do and slightly redefining what that means. The experience you have is actually very broad. It's not just about being in agencies. It's about the exposure you have to the industries, the sectors, the specific businesses, whatever that might be. That experience is broad. You've just got to find a way of describing it as such and not let it be seen as a narrow level of experience based on the industry that you work in. That's not what defines your experience. The breadth comes from the range of things you have done and the range of organisations you've worked with and the range of categories you understand. So let's talk about one specific organisation. Let's talk about Forsyth Bar. So you're Chief Marketing Officer. Yes. What do you and your team do? Um, well, what we do is defined by the sort of the, I don't know, the specifics of what we do, the uniqueness of what we do as a business. And there's probably three things I'd say are really important in that. Um, the first of those is that we're a wealth management business. And so by definition, we are of value to probably a relatively small proportion of the population. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone, unfortunately, has a need for someone to help them manage money. Um, that's what we do. So we serve a smallish group and and so that's got uh, an impact which I'll, I'll talk about a little more in a moment um, the second thing is that I think what we do is incredibly important to the people we do it for if we're looking after money 
And for the most part, we're talking about people uh, who are entrusting us with um, years of hard work and toil and sacrifice and saving to accumulate a sum of money Mm -hmm. that they then entrust us to help them look after. That actually is an unbelievably important thing. It's an incredible responsibility. Um, And so that's a key part of the dynamic we grapple with. And then the third part I would say is that we're a, so we're a national organisation. We've got 24 offices around the country. So a big chunk of what we do as a marketing team is about supporting that network. Right. So three dynamics in that. So the first one, um, which says that we are relevant probably to a relatively small proportion of the population, again, by definition means we're not a mainstream business. So we don't market to... Um, the nation as a whole, we're very specific about the group of people that we need to talk to. And we're probably even more specific about the times at which we need to talk to them. There are specific reasons why you would need to or have reason to engage with a business like ours. So our job from a marketing point of view is to make ourselves as uh, as, as relevant and available at exactly the right time that someone needs us. So that tends to mean we're less in the broadcom space we are much more in the uh, smart digital and uh, sort of referral space that makes sure that at the very time someone needs us, we are there and we are relevant. Um, and so that's that kind of defines a lot of what we do from a tactical point of view. Um, in terms of the nature of what we do, I think it's actually the most important part. Um, as I said before, people uh, entrust us with something um, pretty significant. And so it means a couple of things from my point of view. One is I think we have to be really, really aware of the significance then of every interaction we have with a client. Mm -hmm. Um, We are talking about a thing that's incredibly important and we have to reflect that we understand that and that we value appropriately the faith that they place in us. Now, that means that every time we deal with people, it has to be as absolutely uh, compelling as it can be, as precise and professional as it can be. It has to reflect an organisation that absolutely gets this stuff right because these people are entrusting us to look after their money. And the signals that we send through those interactions are hugely important. So a lot of what we do is about making sure that that's exactly what we deliver. And I think philosophically, you know, we take the view that we're, we're probably lucky in that we tend to have clients for a long time. They come to us, they want us to help them manage money. Hopefully, we get to do that over an extended period. Now, I think on that basis, we take the view that effectively we, we, we re-win that client every time we have an interaction with them. Mm. We have to reinforce to them that we are the right people to entrust to do this very important thing. So that's a big driver of what we do from a marketing point of view. And then the last, again, is, is to say, you know, we've got 24 offices and that brings with it a lot of practical things. We have a big role in providing the appropriate you know, collateral and materials that our advisor network needs in order to be able to do their job. Um, we're very involved with events and seminars and local activity, whether that's, um, you know, in many cases, sponsorships, partnerships, those kinds of things. And a lot of that is really important at a local level. So what we do probably sits across those three territories. It's quite an interesting mix, though, of, of, of brand and, and tactics because it seems like, you know, with, with 
such a weight on, on the shoulders of the marketing team to make sure that you really win that client at every interaction. The brand is a key part of, of, of every engagement with them. So I suppose, what's your, what's your approach to brand? Because you're not a business that runs, you know, big 90 second uh, manifesto TVCs. So how, how do you communicate your brand and how do you, I suppose, nurture it? Sure. Okay. I mean, I'd make one point, which is I don't want to overstate the contribution that marketing makes in those interactions. Very often, most often, that interaction will be with a person, with an advisor or with yep. someone from our business. Mm -hmm. That person is in reality what drives the quality of that experience. We just need to make sure that what we do from a marketing point of view reinforces that. So I imagine there's a risk of you undoing some of that work if you provide a piece of collateral or whatever that's, you know, I'll completely. Subpar. Look, I, I use the example all the time and um, people are somewhat sick of hearing me talk about it. But, you know, there's, a, there's an incredibly important moment when we sit with a client and when by we here I mean us as a business. We sit with a client and we're talking about our approach to helping them to manage their money. And this is, as I say, and, uh, you know, for them possibly the kind of, you know, the sum total of a, of a life's work to arrive at a sum of money, which is going to be what they will um, hopefully thrive on for the, for the rest of their lives. And at that point, we put down on the table a document which sets out what we want to do. Now, that document has to, in every way, reflect the significance of that conversation. Mm. You'd completely undermine that if you dropped on the table a slightly scuffed A4 printed document that's come out of a laser printer yep. and been sort of clumsily stapled. Yep. That doesn't reflect the significance of the conversation. A uh, beautifully presented, mm. um, incredibly well thought through, articulated plan is what needs to land on the table and it needs to land with a thud because there's a lot of work and a lot of experience and a big promise that comes along with that document. So that's the job that I think marketing has in behind it. The quality of the thinking, the analysis, the plan is not what marketing does. Yep. That's the most important bit. We've just got to make sure that the marketing bit reinforces that. And how do you go about defining your brand and communicating that externally? Um, we don't, we, we communicate it far more by action than mm. we do by comms. We're not a a brand communicator in that sense. Um, how we define it, there's a range of things that are really important, I guess, as part of um, how we operate as a business. And so at the risk of sounding a bit pretentious quite quickly, you know, it's how we live those things far more than it is how we might choose to communicate those things. Yep, yep. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pluck a couple of things out of that. You know, we are a business, we, uh, we're a sort of an 85 year old business. Um, there is a, uh, we've got 24 offices around New Zealand. There is a commitment on our part to making sure that no matter where you are in New Zealand, no matter where you choose to live, our view is you should have access to the best possible advice to help you to grow and manage your wealth. So our uh, kind of living commitment to that is we choose to have 24 offices. Mm -hmm. We choose to be where people are. Um, there are a couple of really important triggers, I guess, or, or um, I don't know, signals that we send. One of them I just touched on um, in how we reinforce the, the quality of thinking. I think for our clients, one of the things that's really important is the sense that if there is 
knowledge that helps you do your job, that helps you manage money best for me, I want to believe that you have access to it. I don't necessarily need to know what it is, but I want to know that you have it mm, and that mm. you understand it and that you interpret it and you bring it to life in the way that best benefits me. Yep. So another of the things that's really important from our point of view is how we showcase, first of all, the uh, kind of access to knowledge and expertise that we have, but then how we showcase our ability to um, to understand that, to interpret that, to bring that together in a way that best benefits a client. So that's, again, a kind of a key strand of what we do, and that comes to life in a whole range of different ways. Okay, so... Lots of listeners will know that financial services has undergone a huge amount of change over the last few years, particularly around risk and compliance. So as a marketer in financial services, I suppose, what what role does risk and compliance play in your world? Oh, look, a fundamental one, because that is our license to operate as a business. So um, I think think probably there's a couple of things. From a risk and compliance point of view, there are things that are simply non-negotiable. You have to Mm -hmm. operate in a certain way. Um, That's absolutely therefore how the business should operate. Now, that doesn't necessarily make life easy for a client. Mm. Our job from a marketing point of view is to make sure that where a client is required to do something based on a regulatory requirement or a compliance requirement, it's, uh, it's a benefit for them to understand why they need yep. to do that. Yep. And more importantly, why that's actually to their benefit. Mm-hmm. So there's an explanatory role in that, right. I think, for us to make sure that it's clear why this is the case. Because for the most part, there's a really good reason why, and it is actually to your benefit as a client. So I think, yeah, there's a responsibility to make that clear. And then I think there's probably a, you know, there's an experience opportunity out of that, which is uh, understand that there is a simple thing that needs to, often it's not simple, there is a thing that needs to be done Mm. in order to be compliant. Let's try and build an experience that makes that as straightforward or as clear, whatever it can be, Mm. so that it doesn't feel like a, um, you know, an instance where as a client I get left at the end of it thinking, why on earth did I have to do that? That makes no sense to me. Why was that a bit of information required? Why did I have to verify that thing for a second time? Make it as easy as possible for someone to do and make it clear why it needs to happen and what the benefit is to you. That's, I think, probably the job of marketing when it comes to um, to regulation and compliance. Excellent. Good answer. Let's go a bit broader now. So let's let's start by asking you, if you had to pick some top tips for successful sales and or marketing activity... What would those tips be? I would focus on two things, and these are more marketing-focused than they are sales-focused. And they're both things that people said to me very early on in a, in a working career. Um, first of those is absolutely my favourite quote ever on the subject of marketing, advertising, um, whatever it might be. Uh, a chap called Ber- Jeremy Bullmore Um, who was a very famous planner in the UK um, some years ago, he made the observation that consumers build a brand as a bird builds a nest from scraps and straws they chance upon, which is a fantastically grand way of describing something. But the observation in it is brilliant 
the way we form a view of a brand is based on all of the many and varied things that happen to stick in our mind or seem important or that we latch onto that relate to that brand. And why I think it's brilliant is because from a marketing point of view, we tend to want to cling to things of significance and most often things of significance are things that we can control. So we like to think that people form their view of a brand based on what we choose to tell them. So the comms we run, um, the collateral we produce, the press releases we release, the things that we say, we want those to be the things that are most important in forming someone's view of a brand. They're not. The things that are really important are the things that they happen to stumble onto. So the things that they hear other people say, the um, slightly grubby delivery van for a retailer that parked halfway over their driveway mm-hmm. is a significantly more important scrap or straw than any ad that retailer will ever run. The um, very helpful, uh, I don't know, um, uh, uniformed representative of a retailer who happened to be outside and offered a helping hand to someone is hugely more impactful than, again, the things that we want to try and control. So I think one of the things that's really important, if you can do it, is to kind of take that much broader view of the scrap and the straw as much as the the big bits that feel like they should be important because... Yeah, it's usually not the case. The stuff that's really impactful, the stuff that's really important is what would appear from the outside to be the small stuff. So I think that's one thing. I think the second, and I really wish I could remember who said this to me. It was in my very early days working in agencies and it was someone from a marketing department. Um, And we were talking about an initiative and they made the observation that the really important thing in deciding what we do with this is to really be able to answer the question of, is this where a dollar has got most value? And it's pretty obvious really when you think about it, but everyone works in a limited budget environment, Mm. therefore you make decisions about where you choose to spend your money, and all logic says you would make that decision based on what's going to deliver the most value. But very often that's not the case. Actually what you end up doing is thinking about, well, what seems most important, or what's got profile, or worse, what I think happens a lot is that something gets started and over time maybe it changes a little bit and, uh, I don't know, the parameters creep a little bit and you end up with a thing that actually doesn't really necessarily look like what you even started working on, but it's a, it's a sort of a live thing now. It's underway and that brings with it this odd sort of commitment to completion mm. and Very often, I think, if you looked at it coldly, clinically, and said, is this where a dollar has most value? Is this where a dollar will deliver the greatest impact, the greatest return? You very often find, actually, that's not where it is. So that kind of discipline of looking at things in a relatively clinical way and being able to say, yeah, absolutely, for this dollar I've got available, this is the place where it will deliver most value, therefore this is where we will spend it, I think that's a great discipline if you can get into it because I think most often that's not the case. Key to that is having marketing metrics that truly align to business metrics and sometimes there's a bit of a gap there. Oh, absolutely. 
absolutely. So I think yeah, that that certainly helps, but I think it's a bigger question because even within that, it's there are lots of things that might may contribute to a specific defined objective mm-hmm. or metric. So even there, you can make a decision to say, yeah, well, sure, that will go to, you know, um, I don't know, that'll go to a perception measure. So mm. cool, great, let's go ahead with that. Yep. Is that perception measure more important than another metric? probably need to be able to make that decision in the first instance. So now we've got metrics competing with metrics. But actually, I think at a basic level, if you ask yourself the question honestly, it's pretty straightforward to get to an answer. Does this thing really feel like it's going to deliver the most value? Yes, do it. Mm. If not, you might have to explain why this now isn't the thing that we're going to go ahead with. Before you said um, you're going to give me some marketing-related tips, but not sales ones. So I want to talk to you about the relationship between marketing and sales as disciplines. What's your view? Um, my view is I struggle with the kind of distinction that we feel like we need to make between, uh, well, first of all, between those two things. But actually, more recently, I'd throw, I'd throw customer experience into the same kind of mix. Mm-hmm. Where I think we have this odd inclination to want to compartmentalise those three things yeah. and view marketing as a thing that creates demand which then hands over that demand to sales who then make a sale who then hand over what is now a converted customer who now has to have an experience and it's kind of tidy Mm. but I think it's a bit meaningless now I'm really conscious in saying that that there are very specific skills that make for success in each of those three areas. So I, I absolutely do not um, want to leave anyone with the impression that I'm saying that they're all kind of just general things. Mm-hmm. They're not. It's very specific skills and expertise that are brought to the table to be a really effective operator and a really effective organisation in each of those areas. I just don't think it's very helpful to split them up and sort of envisage it as this sort of baton-passing continuum where you move from a phase to a phase to a phase. I think it's much more helpful to view them as one key deliverable and at that point call it what you want. Yeah. But they all fit absolutely into one big discussion, one big um, function as opposed to, I think, quite distinct uh, delivery. So let's talk about marketing specifically. What are some common myths um, that are out there about marketing? Um, oh, look, I think the one that probably most people latch onto immediately is that marketing equals comms. Um, maybe I betray my agency background in saying that, but I do think that that's pretty common. Um, and, and resoundingly clearly, as will be obvious to most listeners, that's just not true. It might just be the most public component of mm. marketing and therefore it's the thing that people latch onto. I think the other, and probably our organisation is a really good example of this, and hopefully what I described earlier demonstrates it, I think there's absolutely a myth that marketing is something done predominantly within marketing departments. Certainly we do some things that mm. uh, you would hope are very specific to marketing, but in terms of marketing the organisation, that's absolutely an organisation-wide thing. So um, I don't know whether that's a myth or I'm just trying to be slightly sort of I don't know, clever with the language, but it, it is a thing that strikes me often that, um, you know, it feels like a bit of an order-taking thing. We need some marketing, therefore we'll go and talk to the marketing department. Actually, 
the whole mark, the whole organisation, um, when appropriately kind of empowered and supported, actually is one big marketing engine. So define define marketing under that um, that con- in that context. Um, it's the it's the kind of representation of the business as we would like it to be seen. Mm. I guess is marketing in general. And, and hence why everything the business does, everyone who works within it and everything they choose to do is absolutely about representing the organisation that we would like to be. Um, and scraps and straws, some sc- might say. Scraps and straws. Many, many of them formed, hopefully, into one really powerful brand. So look back on your career, um, which you're only partway through, clearly. Um, I don't want to sound like a you know, post-mortem. Um, what are the achievements that you look back on and you're, you're particularly proud of, um, whether, you know, whether in your current role, previous roles? What do you look um, back on and go, I'm, I'm really pleased I was involved in that. That made a difference. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to a couple. I'll go to um, I was really fortunate uh, to be uh, involved in the very, very early stages of the 100% Pure New Zealand um, platform for Tourism New Zealand. Um, I joined MNC Saatchi actually um, to help run that business for a period of time. And it's one that uh, I would hope there's not too much debate that that was a fairly groundbreaking um, marketing delivery, not just for New Zealand, but actually it, it is still, I think, absolutely the benchmark for that category globally. But the more important bit is, I think, what it did for New Zealand, not just for the industry in New Zealand, but, you know, I don't think there was a lot of talk of brand New Zealand before mm. that platform. I think it really kicked off what has become a much more uh, significant contribution to many industries and, and hopefully you know, New Zealand as a whole. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have been involved in that. Um, one that I really latch on to, just because I've used this example a number of times to uh, try and explain to young people that uh, things existed before they were aware of them. You just rolled your eyes when I you did, said young yeah, people. Absolutely. I rolled everything. It wasn't <laughs> just my eyes. Um, I was involved, uh, this would have to be sort of late 90s, in a campaign for AMI Insurance, uh, which introduced Kelly Brown and her party to the country. Now, many people, assuming there are many people listening to this podcast, many of those many will have absolutely no idea uh, what that was. All that matters is to say that it was a campaign that was viral before viral became a thing that we talked about. There was no social media. but it was a campaign which we launched and within hours we had news media trying to track down who was responsible for this thing, whatever awesome. this thing might be. Mm. Um, I, uh, again, this ages me terribly, I was interviewed on the Paul Holmes show <laughs> talking wow. about that campaign and it was enormously effective, most importantly, for AMI insurance, um, but it was a real moment of feeling like we had created something that took on a life that was much, much bigger than I think even we had imagined. It was 
popular culture for a short period of time and actually in a wonderful kind of circle closing moment. Um, now in my role at Forsyth Bar, we are the sponsors of the world's finest stadium in Dunedin um, and that, uh, for a little bit of rugby history, is the proud home of Tony Brown, um, uh, outstanding All Black and uh, subsequently coach. And on the back of that uh, party at Kelly Brown's campaign, um, that was adopted by uh, Otago rugby supporters and it became known as Party at Tony Brown's Place. Awesome. And you still see signs cropping really? up now. Wow. So I go to the stadium now and you will still see Very exactly cool. that. And, yeah, personally, it's a wonderful kind of continuation of a thing that felt really significant many yeah, years ago cool. and and yeah it's it's pretty um uh what is it it's pretty gratifying actually to see that it still lives on even in only a small way mm. so so you've had a really interesting career and you've you know you've achieved you've achieved a lot um apart from that time you gave me a job um what what's been the secret to your success I know, you, I know you, you don't like me to call it success. Yeah, but I, honestly, what, I've rolled my eyes for a second time. What, what has been the secret to the mediocre career that you've scratched out over the years? Um, Is that better? Yeah, thank you. Um, far, more, far more authentic as a description. <laughs> um, there's no secret. I was lucky to find myself in an industry that I really enjoyed. And to find that that industry is very uh, welcoming, engaging, positive, encouraging. And I, because of that, ended up with sort of subsequent opportunities. The only, and absolutely it's by no means a secret, possibly the one thing that I think was an advantage for me is that um, I quite proudly actually do describe myself as a little bit of a generalist. I, I did a marketing degree. I went into agencies, um, therefore most logically into a suiting role. But I ended up um, doing any number of things within agencies. I worked as a planner. I, for quite some time, actually, actually really would have loved to have been a writer. Um, uh, but, yeah, I worked as a planner. I then went in ran a media agency for a while. I worked for a design agency. Um, it, the, the sort of versatility, I guess, was mm. maybe helpful. And that's not based on anything other than I just found all of those things really, really interesting. Yeah. So it wasn't so much that I liked uh, a particular component of being in agencies. I just loved being in agencies and what agencies did and had some real interest in in all of those many and varied things. And because I was a bit of a generalist, was maybe lucky enough to therefore be able to turn my hand to a range of them. And and maybe that's a reason why I I had a bit more variety in that mediocre career and maybe spent a little bit more time in the industry than maybe some others have. And you had an amazing eye for talent as well, obviously. Clear to everyone. Yep. Good, good. Glad we've covered that off. Um, so you've worked you've worked in house. You're working in house now. You've worked as a as a uh, an agency partner. What are your views on what should be um, outsourced versus done in house? Oh, look, I resoundingly don't think that there is a universal rule to that. Um, I don't think there's a should be, but there are times when it might be appropriate. Um, so, 
I think there's a there's a couple of things. I guess there's a there's a question over where does certain kind of expertise flourish, and I think creative agencies are a good example. Mm. People who tend to be very good at that, uh, you know, that kind of delivery, tend maybe to flourish a little more in certain kinds of environments, certain kinds of cultures, and they tend to exist more in agencies than they do in maybe corporate organisations. So there's probably a, a follow-on from that. If, if the question is where do they flourish, then the question I guess you ask yourself as a business is how do I best access those skills? Mm. If they flourish best in agency-type environments external to your organisation, then access them there as well. That's not universally true, but that would be my observation. Um, there's then a second strand, which is, I guess, where in your kind of uh, your timeline or your life cycle do you want certain skills? And so um, maybe to give an example, one of the things we're responsible for from a marketing point of view is, is our, um, our website and our digital presence. And I think that's probably a good example where there are, um, in the first instance, in um, developing a lot of that, uh, we go looking for those skills. We go looking for them externally, and with that comes the significant benefit of a, you know, a, an external perspective, an impartial point of view, a broader frame of reference, all of that stuff that can be hugely helpful. But there's a point at which then some of the technical skills can be much more useful to you or much more usefully deployed when they live within an organisation. And that's maybe mm. when you're at the end where you're talking about kind of to complex technical alignment or you're talking about pace of change or you're talking about needing to understand in a, at a really kind of granular level of detail the nature of your business and how certain things happen. So there comes a point where some of those skills may be better live within the organisation. But, you know, they're examples, they're by no means universals. But, you know, if you wanted to simplify that, and I'm maybe slightly uncomfortable that I'm simplifying it too far, but you could say out of that, maybe creative skills best live externally and technical skills best live internally. But again, I'm not sure that's universally true. Is it about um, the value of an external point of view and sometimes an internal point of view has more value than an external one at different, different points of a yeah, process? Absolutely. Absolutely, and and I guess that tends to follow a timeline. In the first instance, the the, the wide sweeping view can be a really really helpful one, mm. and and it's not just wide and sweeping; it's forcing you to see things in a different way. Mm. And of course, yep. when you live in an organisation every day, you tend to see things through that lens. Yes. So being forced to see that differently can be massively helpful, and that tends to be at the outset, I think, of a of a project. When it comes to marketing, what what do you think big companies know that small businesses don't, or vice versa? Um, look again. I'll maybe try and be a bit clever with the with the language or a bit semantic about it. I don't think businesses know anything. People in businesses know things, and so maybe they tend to exhibit certain things in different kinds of organisations. But the difference between the two, I think, is that they they both have something really valuable. Big businesses, uh, probably by becoming big, have tended to build a degree of momentum mm -hmm. and momentum is a really valuable thing because it tends to be um, I guess a bit sort of self-perpetuating I guess that's exactly what the word means so when you're a big business and you've got momentum that makes it significantly easier to continue to push 
in a direction, whether that's forward or not, but you tend to have that natural kind of impetus yeah. for things to keep going. Mm. Um, that can be really valuable. I think what tends to happen is smaller businesses who uh, as yet don't have that momentum tend to have an equally valuable thing, and that is you know, ambition. They're driven by wanting to actually get momentum, not necessarily to get big, but to be successful, mm. and, and that's a momentum thing. So they tend to be driven by a different thing. Um, if you could combine those things, you've got the best possible business. Yeah. Or you've got yeah. momentum and ability to keep things um, happening, to, you know, to, to look for growth, to fund initiatives. Momentum's fantastic for that. If you can align that with the ambition of a small business, mm. you've got the perfect scenario. Likewise, a small business, if you can take that ambition and you can build just that first sense of momentum, that then you know starts a path. So I'm sure there are far better answers to that question based on people who have operated out of both of those organisations and they can be much more definitive about sort of what tends to exist in them. That's a pretty glib external observation, but I, they, they do seem to be driven by slightly different things and, and momentum is great and ambition is great, but the combination of the two of them is, is relatively unstoppable. So Absolutely. that's what you need. This has been a really interesting discussion today, Philip. Thank you. Um, I, I'd like to end with, with one question, um, which we ask all of our guests, which is um, if you had to give our listeners a single piece of advice that they could go in action tomorrow, what would it be? I would go back to the scraps and straws that people chance upon. I think if you can take that view of whatever it is that you're looking at, the initiative, the problem, whatever it might be, and look harder for what are the scraps and straws here? Where is the real impact? What's the major thing that's going to contribute to how someone sees this or feels about this? Invariably, I think that's where the real value sits. And it's also where the, you know, the differentiation or the opportunity sits because it's the thing that's different to what other people are tending to see. So I think if you can train yourself to look for this, it, it's not that you go looking for the strap and the straw, that's what you find. What you go looking for is what's most impactful in this situation, what matters most. And, and it's a I mean, the risk of being a bit grand about it. It's actually a really helpful way, I think, of looking at a conversation that you're having with someone. It's, it's, you know, it's how relationships work. It's being able to understand what has most impact here. What is this person seeing? What do they need? What's going to kind of change their view? What's going to make them feel great? What's going to push this thing forward in the right direction? And it's usually not the most obvious thing. And if you can train yourself to have that view, to see what's the most impactful rather than what's the most obvious, I think that's really helpful in every area of your life, actually. I think that's really helpful. What a great way to end the interview. Thanks so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider. If you liked it, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app for fortnightly episodes. For other great New Zealand podcasts, head over to podcasts.nz. And if it's IT expertise you're after, then make your way to gorillatechnology.com. See you next time.